Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Russ Kinnell shines a light on three struggling gold-rated funds. Ed Slott tells us the new rules about inherited Roth IRAs. Christine Benz assigns us an important to-do for September. And Ben Johnson explains what's been going on with ARK Innovation ETF. Let's get started. Here are Russ Kennel from Morningstar Research Services and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Morningstar assigns high fund analyst ratings to strategies we think will outperform a relevant index or their peers over a full market cycle. But that doesn't mean that there won't be some bumps along the way. Joining me today to talk about three gold-rated funds that are having a struggle this year is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. Thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. First, let's talk a little bit about underperformance in general, Russ. In what instances might underperformance simply be a temporary phenomenon? Maybe a manager's style is out of favor, or maybe there's been a misstep. And then how can you tell when really something more dramatic is going on that might lead to a downgrade? Yeah, if, if you own a fund for a period of 10 years, even the best fund is going to underperform for a couple of those years. So you have to uh, understand going in that you've got to tolerate uh, some of that for, from the get-go. And as you say, often it's simply a matter of a, a fund's style being out of favor. Uh, when a fund's going really good, it might seem like the manager is ahead of the curve and has their uh, finger on the pulse of the market and is always going to be ahead of the curve, but that doesn't really sync with reality. So uh, funds tend to have favorite sectors. They tend to uh, have a, a style bias towards value or growth, and all those things factor in. So uh, you kind of expect uh, in different markets that different funds will underperform. Where we get concerned is if it's prolonged, if if they reveal mistakes we don't think they should have made. Um, so that's when we start to, to worry. Uh, but simply underperforming for a year is not necessarily a big deal. So, and just to be clear, the three funds that we're going to talk about today, they're all struggling a little bit this year, but we've retained our gold ratings on all of them, right? That's right. So, so the gold rating tell you that we, we definitely believe in these funds, even though they're struggling. So uh, if a bad year, but it's still gold because our analysts essentially are reaffirming a rating every day uh, uh, they, they, they're at work. So uh, if, it's, if it's still gold, that means we still have faith. Okay. Well, the first fund that we're going to talk about that's having a little bit of a hard time this year is Brown Capital Management Small Company. Uh, the fund's actually in the red for the year to date through the middle of August. What's going on there? Yeah, this is a good fund, very uh, fundamental earnings growth driven, but it's very aggressive. Huge weights in tech and healthcare. Uh, and so you kind of expect every few years it's going to have a tough year like this. Uh, and this year, uh, small growth, particularly small tech and healthcare, have done worse than large growth in tech. Uh, and so you can really see that the, the fund is suffering for it. But it, it had a really nice run the prior year, and its long-term record is still really robust. Next up is FMI Large Cap, and the returns for that fund are landing near the bottom of the large blend category this year. What's going on there? Yeah, this one's maybe the one disappointment of the three we're talking about because it is a valuation-sensitive fund, and value has done better than growth for the most part this year. Uh, so you would kind of expect it to do well 
But what's holding it back right now is it's got a lot of uh, consumer defensive stocks, particularly U uh, European names like Unilever uh, that have really been sluggish. And uh, while the economy is really coming back and economically sensitive stocks are uh, charging ahead, uh, these more defensive ones are holding back. And that's kept the fund uh, in the bottom decile for the year. And then um, pivoting over to the bond side, um, Western Asset Core Bond Plus is landing in the bottom decile of its, its category, and which is pretty notable considering this fund has you know, been a top half performer for nine of the past 10 years. What's, what's going on there? Yeah, this is a good fund, but fairly aggressive as that, that plus indicates in the bond world. Um, and they tend to be long duration. They've been skeptics about the uh, story for a long time about uh, inflation is going to come back and it's going to ruin the bond rally. And for, as you note, most of those 10 years, they've been right. But this year, uh, the economy has been strong. Worries about inflation have come back. So the long end uh, of, of the yield curve has gotten punished a bit. And given their longer duration, uh, they've also suffered for it. Well, Russ, thank you so much for putting the performance of some of these funds in perspective. Um, sounds like investors should keep the faith this year with them, right? I certainly would, yes. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. talks IRAs with tax expert Ed Slot. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. The SECURE Act ushered in new rules for inherited IRAs. Joining me to discuss what you need to know about that is author and tax planning expert Ed Slot. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Great to be back with you, Christine. Thanks. It's great to have you here. I'd like to discuss this new rule for inherited IRAs, the new rules that beneficiaries must follow following the passage of the SECURE Act. Can you talk about that? Well, this is important because it's effective now. Actually, it became effective in 2020, but most people most beneficiaries would start now for a death in 2020. That's when it became effective. And the big change that beneficiaries need to know about is something we used to call the stretch IRA. That was the ability for beneficiaries to defer over their lifetime. They could go out 20, 30, 40, 80 years for a two-year-old and stretch or extend the payouts on their inherited IRA over their lifetime. That ended beginning in 2020. So anybody who inherits in 2020 is under the SECURE Act and was replaced for the most part with something called a 10-year rule, which means instead of that long stretch or extended payout period, most non-spouse beneficiaries will have to empty their inherited IRAs or inherited Roth IRAs by the end of the 10th year after death. The problem or the confusion was when IRS released their signature publication on this 590-B. It's corrected now, but that's like the Bible. And it's normally a big non-event. It's just a wrap up of the new rules. These things come out every year. But they had an example in there telling people how the 10-year rule would work and it was wrong. I think it was copied actually from a prior year and they just upped the years but didn't change it for the 
the SECURE Act, like the SECURE Act didn't exist. So all the estate attorneys, it was in all the professional conferences, they said, you know, IRS is saying under this 10-year rule, yeah, the beneficiaries have to start taking every year for 10 years. That is not the case. In May, they came out with what they call a revised updated. You know, they never say we, there's an error in there. An updated publication 590 that made it clear. They got rid of that example, actually replaced it with a worse example. But in other parts of the publication, they made it clear that under the 10-year rule, there, there are no required distributions for the 10 years except at the end of the 10th year. So the only required payout to beneficiaries is whatever the balance is at the end of the 10th year after death, that has to come out. But you can do whatever you want in the 10 years actually gives beneficiaries a lot more flexibility. They can do whatever they want in the 10 years. Maybe a beneficiary, let's say a son inherits at age 50, but he's still working, making a good income. So he's retiring maybe in three or four years. He's not going to take anything while his income is high. And maybe he'll take distributions once he retires in years seven, eight, nine, and 10. So you have a lot of planning flexibility, but the stretch is gone for just about every beneficiary except the surviving spouse. There are some other exceptions. The surviving spouse is unaffected. They have the same rights and privileges, and that's good because most people that are married leave their IRA or Roth IRA or 401k to their spouse. There are four other categories of exceptions, people who still get the stretch, but it's not many people. One category is very confusing. It says a minor beneficiary. So people are saying, so what's the big deal? If the minor beneficiaries still get the stretch IRA, I'll leave it to my grandchild. They'll go out 80 years. Not grandchildren. It has to be a minor beneficiary of the deceased IRA owner or deceased 401k participant. So for example, that's not going to be many people. If the average IRA owner dies, I don't know, at age 85, what's the likelihood of that person having a 12-year-old child? The only one I can think of is Tony Randall, and he's dead. So most other, it's not a, a common situation. You know where it'd be more common? A 40-year-old, unfortunately, dies early and has a teenager, but then there wouldn't be as much involved generally. So even with the minor beneficiary, if you have that situation, it's only up until they reach the age of majority, which is 18 in most states, or they can actually go till age 26 if they're still in school. But after that, they're back on the 10-year rule. So that's the minor category. That's why that's confusing, not grandchildren. Then you have disabled, chronically ill in this weird category of beneficiaries, uh, not more than 10 years younger than the IRA owner. People around the same age, a non-spouse, it'd be a partner, a friend, a brother, a sister. I guess Congress figured, ah, they're about the same age. Let them have the stretch IRA. How long are they going to live anyway? So those are the categories that are exempt that still get the stretch. But there's one more important category. Anyone who inherited before 2019. So if you had a if you left your IRA, well, you would be dead. But uh, in 2019 to your grandchild who is two years old, that grandchild can go out uh Let's say they inherited, you died on December 31st, 2019. That grandchild can stretch it out if she lives long enough for 80 years. But let's say instead uh, you died on January 1st, the next day. 
10-year rule. So you have to keep track of these two sets of rules. But here's the good news. This will only go on for about 80 years until all the people who inherited before 2020 are kind of washed out of the system. So uh, it is grandfathered for anybody who inherited before 2020, they still get the old rules. You've been talking mainly about people who inherit, but what about people who are planning? If their goal was for their loved ones, say their children, to be able to extend the tax benefits in the way that they were able to do under the stretch, is there any alternative that kind of simulates that same tax deferral or or not really? Yeah, there are alternatives, and that's what everybody's focusing on, the planners are, because what Congress did, they actually made IRAs and even Roth IRAs less valuable for wealth transfer. They actually downgraded these accounts as far as wealth transfer or estate planning, which is exactly what they wanted to do. Congress felt IRAs or retirement accounts should be for retirement and not as an estate planning vehicle to pass on for generations. So they made it less valuable. So now the IRA is not the valuable asset. So it's like a, an old jalopy that is pooped out at death. So you got to get rid of that. You know, it used to be the vehicle that got you this big stretch IRA, but you're not married to it. Change the vehicle, get rid of the old IRA jalopy and get into maybe a limo for the rest of the ride, you know, a, a luxury limo. And there's ways to do that. One way is to start bringing down that IRA balance and it affects the people most affected are people with the largest IRAs because there's more more likely to pass on to beneficiaries that won't be spent during their lifetime. So you might look at lifetime Roth conversions to get that balance down. And even though the children or grandchildren might have to take it out in 10 years, the Roth isn't a bad asset. They could leave it there for 10 years, growing totally tax-free. They still have to get it out at the end of the 10th year, but all of that growth will be tax-free at the end of the 10th year. That's one option. Another option is to get rid of the IRA, not all, but everything in moderation, and maybe look to life insurance. Now, just so you know, I don't sell life insurance. I'm a tax advisor. I don't sell stocks, bonds, funds, insurance, annuities. But as a tax advisor, I have to tell you, the tax exemption for life insurance is among the single biggest benefits in the tax code, not used nearly enough. You could take down some of that IRA, assuming you don't need it, and it's meant to pass on to beneficiaries. And like you said, Christine, simulate that stretch IRA and then pay the tax and put the money into life insurance, which can be uh, given or left to a beneficiary directly or in trust if you're worried about the control or them blowing the money or squandering it or something like that, lawsuits, bankruptcy, all the things people worry about with their kids. And that can be customized to simulate the stretch or even better. Have your own, you remember with the life insurance, there are no stretch IRA rules, there are no RMDs, there's no tax rules and there's no tax. So that's one option for the charitably inclined charitable remainder trust. And the key is you have to have a strong charitable intent. Remember, uh, IRAs are the best assets for those charitably inclined people to give to charity. So instead of leaving it to your children, better off to leave them other non-IRA assets that they hopefully can get a step up in basis on and leave the IRAs to say a charitable trust. The IRA goes to the charitable trust at death, the charitable trust, a CRT, 
would pay income to your beneficiaries for a term of years or for life, and they would get these payouts, which can simulate a stretch IRA. But there's a warning there. I would never do that unless there was strong charitable intent and it was coupled with a backup life insurance policy. Because if that CRT beneficiary, your child or children, let's say, dies early, that's the deal. The money goes back to the charity. So you would want to have a, a life insurance policy on that beneficiary. So if the beneficiary dies early, at least the family is made whole and it's tax free. Also, you have to be aware there are no extra payments. For example, if a beneficiary is getting these monthly or annual payments from the charity, that's what they'll get. Now, some parents like that to control it, but let's say they need an extra 50, 100,000 for some business, medical or financial emergency, no deal, they only get the payments. So you have to take that into consideration. I think the CRT, the Charitable Remainder Trust, is more for, say, a million dollar IRA or over. There's administrative trust taxes. It involves a lot, but it's one way to simulate the stretch IRA, have your charitable intentions uh, uh, flourish for, you know, with the IRA, the best asset to leave to a, a charity and take care of your beneficiaries to simulate the stretch IRA. Other than that, the best thing is to uh, use a lot of your IRAs through QCDs during life, the qualified charitable distributions, and get that money out at the lowest possible tax rate. Ed, you always bring such great information. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Next, Christine Benz helps us formulate a long-term care plan. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. For many of us, September is a time to buckle down after a relaxing summer. Morningstar's Christine Benz thinks it's as good a time as any to take a closer look at a difficult financial planning problem, formulating a long-term care plan. Christine's here today to discuss it with us. Hey there, thank you for being here. Hi, Susan, it's great to see you. So let's start with a basic question. What is long-term care and how likely are we really to need it? Yeah, it's an amorphous term. It describes healthcare and other types of care that are provided to individuals. It's often um, custodial care, care that helps someone with their activities of daily living. So things like showering, uh, getting meals and so forth. And this type of care is not typically covered by Medicare or your traditional health care plan. So it's typically an out-of-pocket set of costs if you do require long-term care. So, you know, this isn't necessarily a happy subject to think about. So it's clear why so many people really don't pay attention to this or tend to skip over it when they're in during the financial planning process. But ignoring it obviously isn't a good response. So where should people really start to think about this? The starting point is thinking about where you fall on the spectrum of paying for long-term care. So people with very little in assets will typically require Medicaid to pay their long-term care bills. And there's certainly no shame in that. In fact, Medicaid is the largest payer of long-term care in the U.S. today. So people without a lot of assets will likely be reliant on Medicaid. At the other extreme, people with significant amounts of wealth, probably a lot of our viewers uh, who have significant financial assets will be able to pay long-term care 
costs out of pocket. So they'd be the self-funders. And then in the middle would be people for whom some type of an insurance product might be appropriate. So there are two types of um, insurance products. One is a pure long-term care insurance product, and the other is what are called hybrid products. And those would be suitable for people who are nervous about their financial assets lasting throughout their retirement years and having enough left over to pay for long-term care. So let's talk a little bit more about those people who can self-fund. What are the steps that they should be taking? Well, I think the key is to think about right-sizing a long-term care fund. And to me, I think you can use the data about long-term care usage to inform how much to set aside for long-term care. So we know that the typical length of long-term care need is about two, two and a half years. The average cost, which Genworth keeps track of, is about $100,000 per year, although there's a huge level of variation in that cost of care, and it's very geography dependent. So if you live in a big urban center, you will probably pay more than $100,000 a year. If you are in a more rural area, it'll probably come more cheaply. So think about duration of, of care to inform how much to set aside. And then I think it pays to take that next step and segregate your long-term care fund from the rest of your investment assets, from the rest of your spendable assets. And the way I think about it is that you're building this fund for long-term care, but if you end up not needing it, it, maybe you have a lot of longevity. Maybe you end up living to be over 100. Well, then that fund could provide you with that with the funds that you need for the later uh, costs in your life. Alternatively, you could leave the money for children or grandchildren if you end up not using it for long-term care or having a lot of longevity. So there's some flexibility with this strategy, which I think is attractive. And then what about people who maybe their plans are a little bit tighter, so they would want to consider pursuing some form of long-term care insurance? Uh, what are the considerations there or things to keep in mind? Right. So there are pure long-term care insurance policies. Uh, a dwindling number of insurers are offering these policies in part because their claims experience has been terrible. They've found out that if people have this type of insurance, they tend to use it. And they've also been beholden to this very low interest rate environment. So many of these firms have been uh, prompted to increase their premiums over the years. Consumers have had kind of a bad experience. Many consumers have. Um, and that's why we've increasingly seen some of these hybrid long-term care insurance products come, come online. And so this is typically a... Uh, life insurance policy with a long-term care insurance rider bolted on. There is a, an additional product type that is an annuity with a long-term care product. These products are more complex, certainly, but they do feature an attractive degree of optionality. So many consumers are worried about putting their premiums toward a long-term care insurance policy, a pure policy that they never need. These products, the hybrid products, protect you against a range of outcomes. And from that standpoint, they can seem pretty attractive. Another feature is that you can do what's called a 1035 exchange into a hybrid product 
from a life insurance product. And so that is uh, something to consider for people who have life insurance that they don't necessarily need anymore. And Christine, what about for people who don't have sufficient assets to either self-fund or to pursue some sort of insurance option? What should they be bearing in mind? Well, I think the key thing to be bearing in mind in that instance is that you may not have a lot of choice in terms of where you receive long-term care, that if you are using Medicaid to fund your long-term care, using state resources to fund your long-term care, you will not have a lot of latitude to choose where you receive care. And receiving care in home, which many people seem to prefer, is typically not an option with Medicaid-provided care. So that's a key consideration. And then another key thing to bear in mind for married couples is that you need to exhaust most of your resources to qualify for Medicaid-provided care, and that can effectively impoverish the well spouse or leave him or her with insufficient assets to live on. So that's another key consideration in that case. It's not an easy fallback. It's a fallback for many, but there are certainly trade-offs. And then finally, you think it's important to think through some of the non-financial aspects of long-term care. What should people be thinking about there? Absolutely. So a key one is the type of setting in which you might choose to receive long-term care. As I mentioned, Susan, most people would prefer to receive care in their home. They'd like to stay in their homes and have care come to them if need be. Um, And that's particularly true as we've come through this COVID period and we've seen such devastation in institutionalized settings due to the COVID uh, crisis, the COVID pandemic. And then another thing I think to to think through is just the impact of long-term care on those around you. So we know that family members tend to be key providers of long-term care on a sort of informal basis, but there are costs to be borne by people providing that care in terms of their own health, in terms of their own quality of life. And there's also been some research about the impact of these informal caregivers, the impact that they felt in terms of their careers, that many people who are informal caregivers are also shouldering paid work elsewhere. So really thinking through the implications for your family, for your extended network, if in fact you require long-term care, I think that's an important set of considerations. Well, Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a difficult topic to discuss, but one that's very important. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. And lastly this week, Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services discusses shorting ETFs. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. In August, short sellers began betting against ARK Innovation ETF. Joining me to discuss what it means for investors when an ETF they own becomes part of a short trade is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. So tell us what's been going on with ARK Innovation ETF in August. Well, what we saw in August was that there was a a surge in the percentage of ARK's shares that were being sold short by investors. Now, that's unique to ETFs because ETFs, like stocks, but unlike mutual funds, can actually be sold short. They are 
traded all day, every day uh, on major stock exchanges like individual equities. So investors can buy them during normal market hours. Uh, generally, investors will go long those shares, but they can also sell those shares short if they have a bearish view on whatever the underlying exposure, the underlying strategy, the underlying market might be. And if furthermore, you can even see uh, options change in, in the case of many ETFs. So puts and calls that allow investors to you know, generate income or otherwise hedge positions that they might take through an ETF wrapper. So it's, it's a unique feature relative to mutual funds, certainly not unique from stocks, uh, that is you know, specific to ETFs and I think has grown in prominence as high-profile managers, high-profile funds like ARKK attract more interest from bearish investors and most recently and most notably uh, Michael Burry of the big short fame who disclosed um, that he was taking a, a bearish view on ARKK, on, on Kathy Wood and team's portfolio. Have we seen this type of active bearishness uh, around an ETF before? Well, we've certainly seen bearish bets on, on ETFs. If, if you just look at the regular roster of some of the most shorted equity positions on major exchanges, many of the largest, most liquid ETFs feature on that list quite regularly. And they feature there regularly because ETFs are being used by a multitude of different types of investors in a multitude of different ways. And, and oftentimes, those short positions will just be evidence of some sort of hedging of another long position on some investor's book somewhere else uh, you know, within the broader ecosystem. What's particularly new and noteworthy about this is that this is a short position, a bet against a very high profile, very prominent manager that's performed remarkably well, it exists in rarefied air. If you look at the long uh, history of, of mutual funds in, in ETFs, so that makes it it's somewhat distinct. Uh, what makes it even more distinct yet is, is not only are you seeing these bearish bets take the form of short interest, but more recently, there was a filing actually for a short ETF. So an ETF that would allow investors to have daily short exposure to the performance of ARKK. So it's not just the shorts, it's not just Michael Burry, it's, it's also uh, other asset managers, some of ARK's competitors that are trying to tee up ways for investors to express a bearish view on this one particular actively managed portfolio. So what are the implications for long-term investors who may own an ETF that's being shorted? Well, it's really going to depend ultimately on the ETF in question. Now, in the case of ARKK, what you could very well see if there is sufficient demand among short sellers for ARKK shares to be sold short is that that could actually, somewhat counterintuitively, result in inflows to the fund. So within the realm of ETFs, there's a type of activity that's called create to lend. And what that means is that new shares of that ETF are being created to lend to short sellers for purposes of being able to express their bearish view. Now, that sort of activity could put more money on Kathy Wood and her team's plate to express long views with. 
So what you see in that instance is a really unique feature, which could, in certain circumstances, exacerbate concerns around things like capacity, which we documented in detail in our March analysis of ARKK. So then are there any broader lessons overall from the investor behavior that we've seen around, around ARK Innovation ETF this year? I think a lot of the lessons that, that we might be able to learn either at the present or, or looking back or, or, or not by any stretch of the imagination unique to ARKK. It's a pattern of investor behavior of, of I would argue, returns chasing behavior in particular that we've seen in, in other funds recently. Specifically, if you look at certain cloud computing ETFs, ETFs that invest in the clean energy space, and it dates back you know, years, decades, if, if not centuries, and is really just fundamental to, to human behavior, is that we see things that are going up quite a lot, and we want to participate in, in whatever that future upside might be. And unfortunately, oftentimes, you know, many arrive at the party too late to enjoy the lion's share of the returns that are being generated by that underlying exposure, by that manager, by that strategy. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.